Cherry Developer News, episode number, what are we, 66? 66. 66, wow. For, um, let's see, for Monday, October 28, 2013, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And I'm Joel Confino. And we're here to talk about stuff we like in tech, development specific. All right, so uh, let's see. This is like the first developer news on a Monday in a couple of weeks. <laughs> I've been so busy. Um, but uh, we have a, a bunch of different things kind of all over the map. Just before we start, um, if you're listening to this on Monday, it's probably the last day that you can sign up for our Data IO conference because uh, we have to start putting the food orders in and get the table set up. So uh, that's going to be on Wednesday, October 30th. Uh, it's downtown uh, in, on 2013, in case you listen to this years later. Uh, downtown in Philadelphia at the Cirrus Center in the Hub. Uh, and for, I forget what the number is, like 90 bucks or something like that, or 80 bucks, uh, you get a full day of big data and data processing topics. Uh, you can find that information at chariotsolutions.com slash data IO 2013. Uh, and that's enough of that. But uh, yeah, if you can go get there, seats are you know filling up. We still have some space. But we're probably going to close registration by Tuesday morning. Okay, so that's out of the way. Uh, you can find all of our podcasts uh, by hitting us at the Emerging Tech site, emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com, and picking the podcast in the menu. Uh, let's start out with the best practice for a pragmatic RESTful API. So this is at uh, vinaysani.com. Uh, looks like a, a person's blog site. Uh, is this Joel? Uh, this is Sujan. Sujan. Okay, so go ahead. Let's talk. This is pretty cool because it sort of compiles all of the best practices and how you organize design REST services in one article. And sort of he organizes the article around the common questions people have about RESTful services, and he answers each of them. And if you're doing this for the first time and you read the papers on it, you're like, okay, I'm scratching my head now, so what do I actually do? How, how does that work in practice? This sort of answers some of those questions. And even for people that have been they think they've been doing REST for a long time and there's tons of shops out there and tons of APIs out there that are not really RESTful and they you hit that when you try to do something and it doesn't follow the pattern. The API sort of like it, it breaks it breaks away the pattern and the abstractions around it. I think this is a good resource to start at to answer all those common questions and design initially look at when you're architecting a REST API. Cool. Yeah. Let's just look flip through this briefly. So uh yeah, so it starts there's a whole bunch of topics here. Uh everything from you know, defining an actual a noun in a RESTful environment, uh, the fact that you can uh, and probably should secure everything with SSL, uh, just because that way your entire channel is secure for all your activities back and forth. Um, talking about you know versioning and things like that. Um, for those who don't know, hate OAS. That's a that's a topic or H A T E hypermedia as the engine of of application state. That's kind of one of the current directions of of REST, right? And what's the concept behind hate OAS? So uh, one of the concepts behind that is when you return a resource, so everything in RESTful services should be you're accepting or returning resources, some representation of that resource. Well, how do you navigate then? How do you know what to do next? How do you know what, you know, can I delete this? Can I update this? Can I do this or that? Rest, a REST service doesn't take you to a page per se, right? It gives you a resource back. And then the hate OS thing is like, okay, well, this resource has a set of links that tell you what you can do next. So it's capturing the state of the current entity and like basically what you can do after that and how you can change that state. But it's something that's, I, I think it can get unwieldy. It's it's hard to like do that all the way through end to end and it becomes tough. So it hasn't caught on yet, but it definitely is pretty powerful. Right. So it's essentially giving the state back uh, in terms of links you can come right back to with REST to bring them back and, and, and work with them. Right. Um, also, he has an interesting thing here about JSON-only responses. So he's making a, a very specific decision 
uh, to go with JavaScript-based data, which I find um, nice, <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, you know, part of the thing with REST is it's really not uh, a direct spec, right? It's a concept. Right. It's four principles. Uh, so I do like this because he goes out, put it, kind of puts himself out there and uh, makes some very specific recommendations right. on how to do it, which is nice. Like, uh, you know, use snake case versus camel case for field names. It's pretty specific. I happen to think he's right. But, you know, this whole idea of, um, you know, how to do pagination, how to do versioning, all these things. So it's just really good because I agree with Sujan. You get rest and it's like there's four general principles. Like what? How is this possibly what everybody's talking right. about? These are good practical suggestions. Like, for example, pretty printing your output. I mean, that makes sense. But when you start debugging big chunks of JSON and, yeah, man, good luck, right? Right. Um, so that's really cool. And also making sure gzip is supported because you're talking about payloads of text going back and forth. Yeah. So you don't compress your output. I mean, that that's a considerable waste. Right. And in general, right, you should just you should definitely be doing some sort of compression on all the stuff coming back from your app server. Yeah, yeah, it's just a good thing as well. And he um, mentions a patch too, which is like something that's come out recently, the the patch method of HTTP, which is supposed to represent like oh, yeah. minor modifications or like you're not updating the entire entity, you're updating a, just a like part two fields. of it. Yeah. Right. So there's this new method to be able to represent that. And now servers and things, I forget what was out there, but they're all adding support for patch now. And I've seen that lately in a lot of APIs. Okay, you know, oh, patch support added. So it, it's catching on. He also has uh, pagination here as well for next and previous and last and uh, kind of a hate OAS basically link saying the next 100 payload is this API with, you know, the number of rows per page and such. Um, pretty cool. Um, yeah, this is a really nice kind of prescriptive you know, here is a way of doing REST. So very cool. So we'll put a link to this on the show notes page. Definitely worth reading, especially if you're just getting started with REST. And for people who have implemented their own strategies, you know, compare and see what you're doing versus what this person is doing. It's yet another way to look at it. Um, and it looks like he has some sort of application, an API for something called Support Foo, which is a customer sort software for uh, software as a service and e-commerce. So that's around that API. That's how he's implementing it. So very cool. Uh, the next thing here, Newton. Yep. There's the next JavaScript physics engine. There's a bunch out there, by the way, and there's a lot of like things around building uh, video games in JavaScript and HTML5 now. So, so a physics engine is something that you would use to like compute, like you know, gravity or wind effects or something like that, where you've got your your player's object flying around, and you need to know how it acts in an Newtonian way in a particular setting. Right. Yeah. Collision okay. detection. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the water ripple effect, all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cool thing about this, different from the other ones, a lot of the other engines out there are ports of like uh, their C++ analog. So when the, the thing's ported over, it's not really meant for like good JavaScript coding, idiomatic coding in JavaScript and garbage collected languages and performance in the browser. Whereas this uh, library was basically built from the ground up for JavaScript developers, you know, JavaScript type APIs. And... Uh, garbage, uh, garbage collected language in mind. So it's performant, it's optimized for JavaScript, and it's easy to consume. And I think it's natural to people that do a lot of Node.js work and other things in the in JavaScript world these days. So the, some of the demos are really freaking cool. Yeah, the demos are neat. There's a the simple demo just shows a bunch of particles kind of bouncing around, uh, and the uh, <coughs> the third one's broken, but the second one's called particles. And when we were starting getting ready for the show. Uh, we we started playing around with this, and there were a lot of ooh ahs because we started clicking along. And, you know, there's like a little X and a triangle and a square and the particles are flowing around them and you can modify the gravity, where the gravity is coming from, the friction, drag, things like that. 
and it's very, very cool. This is really nifty. I like it. Oh, look at that one. Whoa. Yay. Yeah, you guys got to play with this. Hunter hunterloftus.github.io slash Newton. Or just Google, you know, Newton uh, JavaScript physics engine. I'm sure you'll find it there. That's a neat project. Now I want to play with that. Get a canvas and hack. <laughs> you know? Neato. Build yourself a Mario clone. <laughs> Get built entire video games. Hey, let's bring everyone down. Uh, captures are a necessary evil on the web because there are idiots out there that decided they want to... Uh, and we run into this. Uh, a lot of people do. They want to submit crappy forms and spam you. Uh, and so a CAPTCHA tries to prevent you from being spammed by forcing you to take a look at an image and actually evaluating it and typing the values. So what is an AI startup says it's defeated CAPTCHAs? That doesn't sound good. So this thing is uh, a lot more advanced, supposedly, than other uh, pieces of software out there. It's still like the basic like neural network. It gets trained with certain images, and they can recognize characters, then figure out these CAPTCHAs that crazy like 90% rate of accuracy and has gone against Google and Facebook and Twitter and all the other things. But the thing that's cool about this, it needs very little training data. It comes up to speed very fast wow. and it just works like right out of the box. That's not that's, cool though. Yeah, that's pretty big from a machine <laughs> learning perspective. That's normally the big thing. Yeah. You that's need really lots neat. and lots of training right. data this to be accurate. Right. So what is it? I mean, I wonder so what they want to apply the, this company, this guy, he came from a uh, Numenta, which is the guy that the Palm guy that started that company, is going to like solve, you know. Oh right. Going to make like I I don't know some AI big AI company or whatever. He actually spoke at Oscon, uh -huh. but uh anyway, they want to use this for like uh processing medical imagery and that kind of stuff as well. Very so cool. Seems to have a lot of other like captures. Just the first thing they actually tested it on to see how accurate it is. Right. But it has a lot of other applications out there. I wonder if he does he mention anything about a way to. Uh... <coughs> Uh, write caps that would be easily defeat what he's doing. Um, or yeah, it's is it funny at the end of it they say like uh, they're careful about releasing this. Like, I guess there's a lot of like uh, fear around this going out in the public. Oh sure, obviously people writing viruses and stuff, mm -hmm. or like the wildcat getting this. Yeah right, exactly. Huh. But it's neat that, that someone could write something with that kind of uh, uh, mimicking the brain. I guess is what what he's doing there. Some sort of brain mimicry. Um, Brain mimicking software can reliably solve a test meant to separate humans from machines. Hopefully the, not my brain. The robots. They're coming. They're coming and they've got weird dog like running and it's all bad. All right. Singularity. Um, <laughs> Our singularity segment of the week. <laughs> we need music for that. We really do. Uh, let's go to the Elixir language. Oh, no, no, no. Wait. Let's go to the mobile app idea first. So $1 million is the bounty for a good mobile app. Yeah, so this is pretty interesting. You know, you go to a hackathon, you produce an app, and you have a good weekend, you learn some stuff. But Salesforce is having a hackathon where the number one prize is a million dollars. And I believe the number two prize is something like 50K. So this is pretty big. If you come up with a great mobile idea and you enter it in this contest, I mean, you figure how many people are going to enter? Probably a lot. But even so, you know, maybe 100, maybe 500. So you've got a pretty good chance if you have this idea and you really want to bootstrap a company of coming away with a million dollars. Um, so, you know, the the requirements for this app are pretty vague, which is basically just wow us. So that means it's open to a lot of stuff. It also means that it's gonna be a little arbitrary as to what the judges think is cool. So you could come up with a really cool idea, but it's, you know, it's not pigeonholed into one category. It's There's no, you know, specific answer. It's not gonna be like solve the problem, the fastest wins, you know, it's it's very much a subjective competition, mm -hmm. but it's a million dollars, people. <laughs> you know, and that's that's for the primary winner. And then right. the, what do you say the secondary is 50K? I think it's like 50K, but it, this is, uh, you know, hey, 
a great way for somebody to start a company for a million, you know. With I sure dollars. hope nobody sees this and I sign up and walk in and I can do tic-tac-toe <laughs> and make one million. Um, but it does say here uh, it must be you build your app using the Salesforce platform. Right. You have to use their APIs. They actually have a lot of really cool APIs. I was See, just looking at them. Like, my God. Like a, I know. That's the thing. They have like a thousand APIs. List. You know, they've bought several companies that do some really cool stuff and they have just have this giant, you know, list of things. So. There's no doubt that pretty much whatever you can dream up, you could actually implement on their APIs, I would yeah, imagine. They got, they got Angular, Backbone, jQuery Mobile, Knockout. Yeah. Right. Right. Wow. Go Instant is a, a very, cool. very cool company that they recently purchased that does um, basically like live peer-to-peer. Like I work on my desktop, you work on yours, and Go Instant transfers the, the mouse movements and things between them very quickly and things like that. So, um, you know, they've got a lot of cool stuff that, that you could pull out and play around with. Very cool. Yeah. Very neat. Somebody go win a million bucks. Events.developerforce.com is where that's sitting. Uh, and so that we'll send the link to the whole thing that for the hackathon. When does this happen? It's in November, I believe. Let me just open up the details. November um, 21st. Here we go. November. Okay, so one entry. Teams are only allowed to enter one application. Individuals can only join one team. And then they uh, announce the winners on November 21st at 3.30 p.m. Well, they'd start judging then. So, Do so they get rights to like everything submitted or just the winner? I do not know the mm. answer to that. And I do know that you, um, you have to go to their event, obviously, and you have to pay, I believe, $99 to get in. But if you have a reasonable shot at getting a million dollars, I mean, you know. It's a good investment. Well, and right. it's, yeah, 99 bucks isn't that bad. And it's for, it's for a, like a, some sort of event that they have. But yeah, it's uh, it's pretty neat. Blow their minds, make a million dollars. I'm cool. not even sure that they get the rights to your app. Although normally you would think that would be true if they're going to hand you a million dollars. But devils um, in the details. Yeah, I'd have to look at that. But it made me believe that that was not the case. Oh, cool. Mm. They they wanted you to use their stuff, and they want you to have an awesome app, and mm. say, hey, we built it on Salesforce. But not it wasn't for them. It was to promote their APIs. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Elixir. What's Elixir? So Elixir is, let's just open up the uh, functional official. metaprogramming aware language built on top of er, uh, Erlang. On top of the Erlang VM. So here's why I think Elixir is cool. <laughs> is and it the groovy of Erlang? <laughs> it's something like that. So that's the, good. Er, the Erlang VM is like a really great VM, right? So let's just take the analogy to Java. Java has this really great VM and it's battle tested, blah, blah, blah. So people are building all these new languages or in, you know, closure's case, old languages, on top of the on top <laughs> of the on top of the Java VM because it's this great runtime platform, right? right? And and what's another really great runtime platform? Well, of course, Visual Basic. No, of course, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of course, Erlang, and it's known for this VM, right? Erlang's kind of, if I put my spin on it, known for you know the language is maybe a little squirrely, but it has this awesome runtime for doing concurrent processing. It's really fault tolerant. It does these amazing things, right? And so Elixir. I don't know that it's the first, it's probably not, but it is one of these languages that now runs on Erlang and it lets you have you know a nicer syntax perhaps. And it's really kind of a cool looking language when you look through their um, their simple examples. So just <laughs> simple is always easy. <laughs> yeah, well that's true, that's true. I guess Hello World is but pretty no, easy no matter okay. what you're in. So, um, you know, very cool. I love have an inter- interactive, uh, interactive REPL type shell. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it really honestly seems, uh, you know, it seems to have nice syntax and you get the benefits of running on this really solid VM. Now, my dumbest question, 
and I'm sorry I even asked these questions, but um, <laughs> what's in Erlang? No, um, is uh, isn't that what RabbitMQ runs on top of Erlang, for example? Yes. Yeah, and some other things, AMQP Re stuff. Uh, which is RabbitMQ. React is also written in Erlang. Okay. Yeah, I don't know enough about uh, what the, the platforms that, that run on Erlang are. Well, like, but. for instance, um, when um, Jonas Bonaire was writing Akka, he wrote it based on a lot of the principles of Erlang. Right. But he wanted to run it on the VM, the Java VM, I think, to use like a nicer language or something right. like that. But he liked the VM and he liked a lot of its principles. So it's kind of like one of these, I don't know, big important te technologies that came out that influenced a whole lot of others. And I hope now we start seeing more languages on top of the Erlang VM, just like the Java VM, you know, you kind of reuse these great runtimes. Yeah, it. absolutely. Elixir-lang.org. That's E-L-I-X-E-I-R. Not oh. to defend uh, Visual Basic, as you just said, but the CLR is a decent runtime. It is. Yeah. It I is. Just coming up Visual with something. Basic yeah. itself may not I'm with be you on that. CLR just, is actually pretty strong. Yeah, I'm with you on I, that. I was just coming up with something but you know one You're other thing about us. the reason one of the reasons that i well the real reason that i found out about elixir was because the people who are smarter than me on the hadle dev team were telling me about it <laughs> but the secondary reason that they were telling me about it is the pragmatic bookshelf or the pragmatic programmer series which comes out with a lot of you know really good stuff yeah they have great dave stuff. thomas from there is actually writing the programming Program elixir is. book which is coming out so that's really good so if you're even remotely interested dave thomas you know that great programming series comes out of this group and you know be interesting to see. I like his book. In fact, I'm jumping to that book. Uh, it's uh, Programming Elixir, Functional to Concurrent Pragmatic Fun. Okay. Um, the beta book's 24 bucks, and it starts with, you want to explore functional programming, but are put off by the academic feel. And then he says in parentheses, tell me about monads, monads just one more time. <laughs> uh, I might pick up this book. It says it's it's something academics. that's closer to Ruby with the battle-proven environment, uh, basically, that's... It scales on like Twitter. Okay, let's move on. Um, <laughs> all right, so that's Elixir, elixir-lang.org. Let's talk about uh, JBoss Forge now. So JBoss Forge, um, I'll, I'll give you my backstory on this. I, I will do this. I, I, was, I promised I wouldn't <laughs> say anything. So this is personally difficult for Ken, folks. Well, I just want to... It is. Well, so, so here's the funny story. So uh, Lincoln Baxter and Dan Allen... Uh, have been at uh, Chariot's ETE uh, conferences for a couple of years. Uh, they weren't there last year. They're from JBoss. They're from JBoss. Yes, they're developers in JBoss. And, you know, uh, and I've had both of them on the podcast a fair number of times in the past. Um, good, good, good pals we talk to now and then. And, uh, and we, we both actually, Joel and I both know Lincoln. Uh, so it turns out that while I was writing the rubric, uh, deep in the middle of the worst parts of finishing up the rubric, um, Lincoln comes sidling up to me at ETE and says, Psst, buddy, let me show you something. And I said, what? He's like, no, come on. And I just finished, literally just finished my chariot talk at ETE for, for Rue that year. So he drags me out into the, into the uh, uh, open area, and he and Dan Allen sit down and proceed to try to brainwash me on <laughs> – <laughs> they'll, they'll vouch for this. They're trying to brainwash me on Forge. And I'm like, but, but Spring Root does this. And they're like, no, Forge does this. And, and, and Lincoln's working on it full time. And he's like, check this out. And the thing that got me, like, I was just slapping my knees going, this is really cool, uh, was he goes, he, he goes into his shell. He goes, CD space, you know, org.foo.bar.class and hits enter. And the little shell prompt goes with the package and class name. And I'm like, yeah. And then he types LS and it lists all the methods. And I'm like, 
why <laughs> i'm sure it was a wizarding battle for the ages it, it was it was hilarious and i'm looking he's they're looking around saying so see how much better this is than what you're working on and i'm like mm, i'm writing a book on this thing i can't say that so they they will they will vouch for this it's hilarious because i was looking around for all the spring source guys going i hope they don't see me talking to him <laughs> but the book is over now and I, I can look at everything that i want to look at and i've got to say they've done a lot of interesting things with forge um, so Why let's we talk describe about, yeah, what Forge is. So if Rue is a command line tool to build Spring applications and install features in Spring applications like queuing and MVC and all that stuff, Forge is more general purpose, isn't it? Yeah, so I think Forge is basically, I would call it a rapid project setup and configuration tool. So it does code generation. It has a command line shell and allows you to basically, from the user's perspective, essentially like go through a wizard to create things. So for example, um, obviously you could create a shell of a new project. You could go into that project and maybe add an entity which would you know, configure your JPA in the persistence.xml or whatever. So it it's a way to quickly um, scaffold things sort of. But it kind of, some of the things that maybe set it apart that make it pretty interesting. It, um, so, th so that's its general vein. But it's, it, when you create a plugin, they worked a lot on making the plugin API very simple. So they found that OSGI is complicated, and OSGI is used, um, you know, in, in other places as plugins. Amen, brother. Go yeah, on. So OSGI is complicated, and so they they decided probably a smart choice was that they decided to write their own essentially plugin manager called Furnace. So to make oh, plugins, okay. it's very easy. Um, so that part is good because really this whole thing's success is going to depend on the plugins. Right. Um, then when you make a plugin, say you have, so this is kind of where I see it working. So say you have a particular way that your projects get configured. Um, for some reason, you know, when you're creating an entity, you need to create the, you know, entity relational mapper in such some certain way. Well, you can create a plugin that will generate that. And then that plugin can be used from both Eclipse or from the command line in the same way, which is kind of cool. So it dynamically makes the Eclipse like, so again, this is the analogy sort of like a wizard, like a tab completion wizard, but you'll get the same thing in Eclipse. You'll get like menus and you can click through them and they're context sensitive. So when I'm on persistence.xml, it will say, you know, it will allow me to add things that might be relevant to persistence.xml. Like I can add in, you know, things to configure JPA. But when I'm at a different, when I'm on a class, you know, in a controllers directory, it would allow me to add in new controllers or something. So it's constantly aware of where you are. It's and plugins basically fire or not fire based on their context. So it's all when you're the plugin author, you can say this action. So my action might be, um, you know, add a particular method. So well, maybe I say that I can add that method, but I only want to add that when I'm in a directory called controllers because it's not relevant anywhere else in my mm -hmm. entire app. Something like that. Okay. You can write these plugins. It can integrate with the UI. It can integrate with the command line. And then, um, you know, basically you can build your own set of tools. And so it's an interesting idea. It, one thing is that it's bound to Maven projects. So it understands Maven projects. And um, the default set of plugins seem kind of interesting. They let you generate REST and, uh, and there is an add-on called Add-on Gradle. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, they say it create it generates plugins for Eclipse. So the plugin itself runs in both Eclipse and in the command line because okay. so uh. it's um, so Lincoln gave me he had there's some good videos on it and he gave me some uh, he showed me live like what he was doing. But so imagine you create a Hello World plugin which just like adds whatever like adds a method or something. Okay. Um, and you're you're creating a very simple plugin and it it has a, it's a couple lines of code. You can run that from the command line 
and you can manipulate that plugin. Mm -hmm. You can go to a directory and you can say basically, you know, add hello world or something. Or when you are in Eclipse, it will actually give you like a context menu kind of thing where you can say add. So it like actually to the plugins, they get a UI, like it adds them automatically to Eclipse. See, that's really cool. Or it cool. adds the command line. Okay. So you don't have, the equivalent would be if you wanted, you could obviously write an Eclipse plugins and you could write the UI yourself. But it's like it has dynamic menus that right. come because these plugins get activated based on the resource that you have highlighted right. and where you are. So like if I had a project-specific pattern, for example, that emerged over time on a team, I could sort of codify that into this JBoss exactly. Forge that, thing and then other it. developers could use it. Yes. Wow. Or, or they, he talked about using it for migrations too, for migrating from like if you have code that needs to go from one you know, particular way of doing things to another – being able to use this for that. I wasn't exactly sure as much of how that part worked, but um, it's interesting. You know, it's interesting because I think that this furnace container is lightweight and, and makes a lot of sense. And that's really what they supplied is the ability for you to write a pretty powerful plugin fairly easily. That's really what I think they give you. Then they give you a nice set of default plugins that let you generate um, a JE app if you wanted to have REST on the server and AngularJS on the client. But that's kind of their, you know, the plugin ecosystem for this is what's going to make it or break it. And I think how easy it is for you to be able to create your own plugins for your own projects. Because, you know, you'd like to, there's this whole continuum of rapid application development. And so on the one hand, I don't like code generators just as a rule because I say, hey, why don't I make something that doesn't need a code generator? You know, that the, that the, the API is elegant and that I don't need to generate a lot of code because if I'm generating it, what's the point? But the Agreed. problem is... So, so that would might be like closer to the line of like a Grails, mm -hmm. where there's a lot more magic happening, and so you don't have to code as much. But you know what? I am seeing like over you know at least my opinion that that doesn't fit everywhere all the time. So sometimes you do need something where you've got config files and and it's a little bit not as it doesn't have like a magical framework that goes over top of it. So for that kind of rapid application development, you can use something like this, which is really an intelligent code generator. So it was, you know, it was pretty interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. It is. And I'm, I'm just looking through, I'm spending my time while you guys are talking, looking through the different plugins and their syntax. Um, I will say that the one thing it seems that they've really spent a lot of time on here, just from looking at the way they're configured, is they have a templating language for the plugin text. So as you're building, you know, your, here's what the spring config file would be for your web tier. You can put little tags in there that will iterate through collections of objects you stuff in the context and have it fill those out for you. You can pull in things from the Maven build. You can pull in things from like your plugin code, the context of the plugin. Um, and so they spend a lot of time on that. That makes it very nice because when I was writing root plugins, for example, and not to bash it, but to talk about where it is, um, you wrote an OSGI-centric plugin. And you registered, again, same kind of thing. You registered for listeners, and you basically said, you know, trigger me when a Java class gets modified or when I add an annotation or when, um, you know, this class gets removed or created. And so it would be triggered automatically. You'd have to like write a lot of low-level code, whereas this seems like there's a little more like user-friendliness to the API, and it's not NoSGI, which is a big Achilles heel to any of these platforms. Yeah. So very interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, yeah, I got to say, it's, he, he's been spending a lot of time on this, um, and it's good to see that they've actually like gotten to a point where they've got a community, and you're right, the plugins are key. Um, yeah, well, and that's I very important. And I think this is really probably, I don't know where they are with their community. I have to look, but I mean, I think they're ready to kind of release this to the world. And um, I think a lot will depend on whether they can 
you know, uh, you know, wish them the best, whether this team can stay on this project for a couple of years and sort of shepherd the community until yeah. it gets big enough that people are like, okay, now I believe that this is going to be big enough that I'm willing to invest and I want my library or whatever, my way of doing things like spring or whatever. Yeah, I want, right. I want to write the plugins for spring or write the plugins for this right. or that. I and mean, this is J boss. So obviously I'm sure they wrote the plugins for the frameworks that they're important to them. While we're talking about this for just a minute, I think we talked about spring boot a couple of weeks back and spring boot is their, kind of retake on what they did with Rue earlier on. Not that Rue is gone, but they're, they're, they're kind of not making it a first level project like they're doing with Spring Boot. It's like right out front, they're innovating in that project. And so the way they've done is more like the Node.js world where they're saying, if you're a groovy scripter, you can put together five lines of code, eight lines of code, and make a controller-based web MVC app. Hmm. Um, and it does it by convention and by annotations and just boots up everything around it. So it bootstraps it. So they're going in that direction, I think. Whereas this is really hardcore Java EE. If you're a Java EE developer and you want to make sure you can easily repeat what you're doing, you write a good plugin for it, you install the plugin, and you iterate, and you have other projects take advantage of, the, of your of your modules. I think that's a really interesting way of doing it, and I think that's what it is. I think that it looks like there's enough plugins to start with in the community um, that you can pull down and look at. That there's good workable code to to, to hack on like right away. And theoretically, it's very um, output agnostic, so it could be outputting anything. It doesn't matter. There's a and I should say there is a Spring MVC uh, plugin for this. So if you want to, you know, download JBoss Forge, install that plugin, you could create Spring MVC sites with it. So Spring is not gone from. In fact, you could take on and and uh, do that. Okay, and I think uh, that should do it then. So uh, <laughs> it's exactly one hour since we started. <laughs> So, all right. So that'll be it for uh, number 66. Uh, it is, uh, again, uh, developer news for October 28th, 2013. Uh, you can get the show notes from emergingtech.cherrysolutions.com. And so for the dev news, I'm Ken Rimple. See you, John Tapadia. I'm Joel Confino. See you next week.